God, silence in us any voice but yours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Brother Jim Thompson came, the oldest, with overalls and a white shirt buttoned at the collar with a walking cane and a Bible that had stood 50 years of pounding and with that old fire burning through his cataracts. Didn't need no seminary. Always preached the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. Brother Hamer came and Brother Ewart and the three Walker boys, preachers all. They came through the rain, wrestling the wheels of their outer county cars, slipping in ruts so deep their tailpipes dragged. They parked under the trees and along the road and then walked, shine shoes and all, through the mud, picking their way along the high spots like children jumping through puddles into the church of their fathers, the place they had all felt the call, the old home church, where thousands of hands had pressed on the bowed heads of new preacher boys, of sun-reddened young men called by the Lord, called from the cotton fields to preach the word. They had felt the hands, those old preachers, those blunt-fingered, work-hardened hands, felt them like a blessing, like an offering, like a burden. I love that story. It's by a writer named James Autry. I heard it first when a mentor of mine told it the day I was first installed in a church as a minister. He was a Texan by way of Tennessee. He sounded much more authentic than I do telling it. But I love the image that it brings up of all of those hands, hands laid upon people who are called by the Lord just as the first apostles did it in ancient days. Any of us who have been in ministry long enough have heard plenty of sermons about the beginning of a ministry, often full of advice, at least some of it good, advice about life in ministry. It is more rare, and I must say more daunting, to be still young in one's own ministry as I am and to reflect in a sermon about the mature ministry of a colleague who has retired one who served with distinction as your predecessor and is being celebrated as Pastor Emeritus. So today, as we celebrate Tom's ministry here at Knox, I lean on the story I just told you, which I received from a wiser and older minister than myself. And today I wish to just talk for a few minutes about God's calling as a blessing and an offering, and a burden. As I do this, let me stress that this may seem like a sermon about Tom or just about ministers, but I assure you, because we are Presbyterian, it is not. 
Really, it is about the call God places upon all of our lives. That laying on of hands mentioned in the story, it is common to each new class of deacons and elders here at Knox. It radiates into the life of everyone in our congregation. And so I hope you will consider for yourself this morning how God's call upon your life might be a blessing and an offering and a burden. Let's begin with the word blessing. God's call on our lives is a blessing. It is. I could describe this in any number of ways, but for pastors, the most significant blessings must have to do with the time we spend with all of you. In weddings and baptisms and hospital rooms where new babies have been born, pastors get a special pass to be part of the lives of others during precious times. And this applies in a similar way when the precious times are difficult times, funerals, personal crises, tragic accidents. We would all like to skip these times in life, but they are a part of life. And being called to bear witness to the depth of God's love when people are suffering is unmistakably a blessing. In between the precious times, ministers do this more public thing called preaching. And it, too, is a blessing. One of my favorite authors, Craig Barnes, president of Princeton Seminary, says that one of the chief callings placed upon a pastor is to be a poet for a congregation. People often find themselves too busy and somehow at the same time too bored with the life they have. People find themselves stressed out by life's minutiae and searching for deeper meaning. And Barnes says that Poets, look beneath the desperation to recover the mystery of what it means to be made in God's image. In other words, he says, in the midst of the ordinary things of life, pastors get to teach people how to dream. We don't always do that well. But when we do, it's not only a blessing to others, it's a blessing to ourselves. For we get to see people rediscover that they are created in God's image. And in reminding them of that in our own lives, we too are reminded how to dream. So ministry is a blessing. But it is also a burden sometimes in ways that we don't expect. Yes, there are the burdens we do expect, the ones we knew we had signed up for. Ministry is full of evenings and weekends at work, the strange reactions you get when people ask you what you do for a living, and the similar burdens that fall to our family members who get to identify themselves as a pastor's spouse or as a preacher's kid. There's a burden that is of greater substance also. 
Barbara Brown Taylor describes it well. She says that ordained people who take their vows seriously consent to be visible in a way that the baptized do not. They agree to let people look at them as they struggle. She means by that that everyone who is a Christian who is baptized, we all commit in our baptismal vows to live faithfully to Christ's call. But people who are ordained as deacons, as elders, as ministers, they live out this calling in a more visible, more public way. The ordained consent to allow others to watch them as they struggle with their faith. Tom, I'm sure you could fill a book with ways that would your life would fit this description. My direct experience with you is limited, but I am confident in saying that one of your most important gifts to Knox is the vulnerability, grace, and dignity they witnessed as you grieved the loss of your wife, Barb. That was a visible sign of faith, yours and hers too. I am convinced that this congregation cares for one another as well as they do, in no small part because of the ways that you cared for them and in that season allowed them to care for you. You gave them the spiritual gift of watching you as you struggled. This is the burden of ministry. Mysteriously, God's work allows blessings to emerge from it. An offering. I saved this for last, for it is the one that I find most difficult to describe. The word offering tempts us to think that we ourselves are doing something when we know that the work of ministry really belongs to God. In the scripture we read today where Jesus speaks to a group of skeptics about his authority, pastors might be tempted to put ourselves in the place of Jesus, wondering why our own authority is so often questioned. But we know that we are not comparable to Jesus in the story. No, no, we are comparable to the skeptics, the scribes and the Pharisees, for we are skeptical not only of Christ's ministry, but even of our own. We are often the ones asking, wondering, how did I end up doing this mysterious work? We also ask a more frustrated version of the same question, is it too late for me to go to law school? <laughs> we wonder if we are really qualified for ministry. Will we do it faithfully? In the language of the passage, by whose authority do we do these things? When we ask these questions, we are lamenting the inadequacy of our offering. We're revealing our lack of faith. One of the great ironies of ministry, and in a broader sense of faith, is that our inadequacy 
is a gift. One cannot grow in faith by trying harder. A little bit like trying to hit a golf ball further or trying to find the right person to love. You can't grow in faith by trying harder. Faith is something we have to receive. The beauty of Christian life comes about when we realize that faith is not a product of our own perfect work in searching for it. Faith arises out of our willingness to be found. When we get out of the way and stop trying so hard to make ourselves look perfect, suddenly it becomes easier to see God. The more honest we become about our own inadequacy, the more fully we understand the grace of God. God loves us not because we are perfect, but because we belong to God, and loving is just what God does. Tom, you preached a sermon not long ago about the well-punctuated life. In it, you describe punctuation marks that help us understand faithful living. Question marks for the times of mystery and doubt. Quotation marks for the way that we lean on others who have shared their wisdom. Exclamation points for the things in life that are worthy of joy. My favorite was the parentheses. The encapsulated idea in the middle of a sentence that is there for a brief time suspended in thought and then it comes to an end and the sentence moves on. Our lives and our callings are parentheses. We get to live faithfully, not for, but, but for a short time. And we must be as faithful as we can in the time that we are given. Each email that our colleague Jana Reister sends out, it concludes with a quotation from Barb York. Life is fragile, and it can change in a moment of time, so try to be grateful for each day. Live in the present moment and be thankful for every blessing. It's much like that prayer in the book of Psalms in which the psalmist prays, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry and do not withhold your peace at my tears, for I am your passing guest. Tom, we give thanks today to God for the gift of your presence in this congregation, for your humble spirit reminding us that we are parentheses, passing guests in this life of faith, for your wisdom because you are a quotation mark in the life of Knox Church, one that inspires others to go forth in faith and follow God's call as you have done. And I thank you for your friendship and also for your humor. Characteristically, you ended that sermon on punctua punctuation with the reminder that what the people of God often need from their pastor most of all 
is a period. Amen.